This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 10th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. This week, we have a guest as well. Dr. Michelle Evans is a Senior Investigator and the Deputy Scientific Director at the National Institute on Aging, part of the National Institutes of Health. She's also a member of our editorial board. Her research spans epidemiologic and basic science approaches to understanding the interaction of age-related diseases with factors such as race, socioeconomic status, and other social and biologic factors that are associated with disproportionate impacts in vulnerable communities. Dr. Evans, thank you for helping us to think through some of these issues today. Thank you for the invitation. One of the striking observations throughout the current outbreak is how it's had unequal impact. In particular, minority communities have been particularly hard hit with both higher rates of disease and more morbidity, more death. Last week, we published a study that addressed one aspect of this. What did the investigators in that study find? Steve, this was an observational study that was done in Louisiana. It was performed in a large healthcare system, a network, the Oshner Health System, which serves a large number of patients in that area. It's the largest healthcare system in Louisiana. Roughly half a million people who are cared for by the Oshner system About two-thirds self-identify as white non-Hispanic, and most of the rest identify as black non-Hispanic. So the investigators looked at electronic health record data to find out how people fared once they presented and what were the impacts on both the black and white communities. They found that about 3,600 people had presented with COVID-19, and the people who presented were disproportionately black. In fact, about 70% of the patients with COVID-19 self-identified as Black and non-Hispanic. And remember that they represented only about a third of the patients who got their care through this system. These patients, the Black patients, also had more comorbidities with a higher prevalence of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and renal failure than white patients. And all of these, of course, are known risk factors for poor outcomes of disease. However, despite that, their hospital courses were fairly similar. First, a similar percentage were hospitalized. About 40% of Black and white patients were hospitalized. There certainly was more morbidity among Black patients. More of them ended up in the ICU. More of them ended up on mechanical ventilation. But when you adjust for the poor prognostic factors, being Black was not a risk factor for death. In other words, what determined the ultimate outcome of disease was largely their health at the time of admission, not their race. So there's good news and bad news in that. Uh, The good news is that all patients seem to be getting good care, at least in this healthcare system, independent of their race. But of course, Black patients came in with much more serious health problems. And to a great extent, that could represent unequal access to care as outpatients and earlier in life, and certainly unequal access to public health measures. So there are still serious inequalities. They're happening, in this case, before they get to the hospital. Well, I think at this time that we're faced with longstanding and persistent serious health disparities among the poor, among minority populations in general, and particularly for African Americans. And this exists for most chronic diseases, be it cardiovascular disease, or diabetes. And these, of course, were the important risk factors 
for the more severe course in COVID-19 infection. The African-Americans also have higher incidence and mortality from many different forms of cancer. And if we look at the beginnings of life, pregnancies are more frequently complicated, resulting in maternal morbidity and mortality among African-Americans. And this is independent of education or income. And so once these disparities begin at birth, if we don't have the economic supports, the health system supports to work against what happens at birth, we wind up with these serious persistent health disparities. If you look at life expectancy at birth rates in the United States, African-American men are particularly disadvantaged. They have a life expectancy at birth that lags Hispanic men by around seven and a half years and lag white men by at least five years. So this certainly ties into what Dr. Price Haygood and colleagues found in that when you look at their COVID positive patients who were hospitalized, African-Americans were younger than the white patients, 60 compared to 69. Although this may not be statistically significant, it perhaps is a subtle sign of the accelerated aging phenotype or the weathering that's associated with health disparities and premature mortality among African-Americans. Certainly, pre-existing health conditions play a major role in outcome. But as you're beginning to suggest, Michelle, many investigators have found that minority communities have increased rates of even less severe disease, which doesn't necessarily bring them to the hospital. So why is that likely to be true? Well, I think that there may be four things to consider. Employment status, residential segregation, economic inequality, and healthcare access and quality, as we've already touched on. In terms of employment status, many African-Americans and other minorities occupy jobs that are classified as essential workers that do not provide the privilege of working from home. These jobs include public transportation workers, healthcare workers, food service, and other commercial workers. For example, about 50% or so of essential workers in food and agriculture are people of color. We must also consider the gig economy where we have these non-traditional full-time and part-time jobs that are predominantly occupied by African-Americans and Hispanics. Almost 50% of African-Americans rely on these types of jobs as a primary source of income. So these workers, they could not distance themselves or substantially reduce their exposure. And we also have the issue that is also pointed out by Dr. Haygood Price in terms of residential segregation. While the demographers are predicting that the United States will, by 2050 or so, become a majority-minority nation, there are still pockets of segregation within many cities. Hence, we have the existence of what we're calling COVID-19 hot zip codes. For example, a city I'm most familiar with is New York, where I was born and bred. The hot zip codes in New York City that are close to me are 10475. That's the co-op city zip code where I spent my teenage years. And there we have deaths per 100,000 of 368 
with a positivity percentage of people tested at 29%. I went to high school adjacent to there in 10466 in the Bronx. Again, a case positivity rate of 31% and a death per 100,000 rate of 220. When you compare this to Manhattan zip codes, for example, the Upper East Side Yorkville 10028, which is the zip code where the late former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis lived, they had a death per 100,000 rate of 61 and only 13% of people tested were positive. So zip codes are predictors of health, of school quality, of job access, of housing quality, population density, city services, as well as even the availability of high quality food. Now, this is not to say that zip codes that have a high COVID positivity rate are not educationally representative of future accomplishment. I went to high school with Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was also my neighbor in Co-op City. So these are places of great academic and intellectual potential. But we have to realize that residential segregation has substantial effect upon healthcare outcomes, and in this case, for an infectious disease. Michelle, I wonder too, uh, you brought up the point that many African-Americans are working in the gig economy in a country where much of insurance is tied to employment and many gig economy jobs don't supply insurance. I wonder if there's also unequal access to health care as a result of their employment circumstances. Yes, that's very true. And I think that's one of the problems that needs to be evaluated. When we tie health insurance, health care access to occupation and employment, we significantly disadvantage those who have unequal occupational opportunities and who sometimes fail to have persistent and consistent occupation. So it's almost even worse to have insurance for a period of time and then not have insurance, have insurance for a period of time, because that sometimes causes the worsening of some chronic medical conditions, as you're well aware. So Michelle, I mean, the challenges seem to be at almost every level in the community where you live with crowding and density of individuals that may lead to transmission to employment where one has to continue to be an essential worker and commute and therefore exposure and prior health care which can lead to comorbid illness that may be inadequately addressed has led to quite a synergistic illness in this population. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes, income inequality is a severe problem and that drives people to decrease their ability to protect themselves from, in this case, the virus. You know, you have to remember that for every dollar earned by a white man, an African-American man earns 87%. And even when minorities become educated, a racial pay gap still persists where college-educated African-American and Hispanic men earn maybe 80% of what a college-educated white men. And when you look at African-American and Hispanic females, the pay gap is even worse. So that economic lack of opportunity, even in the face of pursuing educational outcomes, 
that would we think provide that economic footing in this country really substantially influences the development of health disparities and the development of multiple comorbidities that in this case have put African-Americans at significant disadvantage of being able to survive COVID-19 infection. And one thing that we have to think about, we don't know what the outcome of COVID-19 infection is. So those who survive it, what are the long-term ramifications on health going to be? So this has now introduced perhaps a new health disparity that will be related to the sequelae from COVID-19 infection. So how much of what we're seeing here is new and how much is simply revealing the underlying problems of racism in medicine? I think that there actually are two pieces to that. There's racism in the medical field and in how patients are treated that is very longstanding. And as Michelle is illustrating for us, there are racism issues in public health in what happens in our communities outside of healthcare institutions. And I think that with the recent defense, the killing of George Floyd, I think that we have an opportunity to look at that again. Yeah, I would agree with what Eric is saying. I mean, the seeds of slavery that were planted in this nation have blossomed into what we call structural racism. And it permeates every institution, including medicine. Whenever you normalize and legitimize preferential treatment for one group over another, privilege of one group over another, this causes societal problems that result in chronic adverse outcomes for, in this case, for people of color. And it psychologically reinforces the belief that African-Americans are inferior to whites in all aspects of life. So, once this is codified into an infringement on human rights, we have to recognize that. Now, I will say in medicine, we have recognized the existence of health disparities. We have recognized the influence of social determinants of health, but we have not really fully marshaled our intellectual resources to prioritize this as we did with the war on cancer that Nixon funded, or the quest for us to unravel the human genome led by Francis Collins. Racial discrimination as a social determinant of health causes real harm and causes real disease. There are numerous studies that link racism and discrimination to accelerated aging, to poor brain health, to chronic kidney disease, and subclinical atherosclerotic disease in African-Americans. It's not a political agenda. We need to be approaching it as an etiologic factor in disease more commonly. So obviously we're talking about longstanding issues, 400 years, as you suggest, Michelle. It seems though that today increased sensitivity to issues of racism might provide an opportunity to act. So what should we be doing right now? Well, I think first off, we must all listen and acknowledge the facts as we find them in this country. And also understand that many African-Americans wish that our white colleagues would recognize that our American journeys are conjoined. 
We have to get through this together. But to do that, we have to recognize that our journey is inextricably bound to our history that has included kidnapping and enslaving human beings who ultimately built this country, defended this country in war, and continue to valuably contribute in every aspect of American life. This is the 2020 truth that we must respond to. We have to, as medical professionals, focus our efforts on attaining health equity. We must act and respond to the words of Congressman John Lewis, who says that we need to stand up for what is right, what is fair, what is just. Healthcare is a right, not a privilege. This has to continue to be our mantra. We need to push this continually, consistently. And we have to try to protect our patients from this environmental toxicant racism by working to understand and to try to mitigate its wide ranging effects on health. And we have to recognize the vulnerability of African-American and minority students and trainees already in the biomedicine pipeline at the undergraduate medical school and postgraduate levels. Listen to them, acknowledge their experience, reject being a bystander by becoming an upstander so you can advocate for your colleagues and these trainees through the educational process. We as a field have an underrepresentation of African Americans, not just as practicing physicians, as academics and medical institutions, and also as biomedical researchers. We have to fix that. We have to fix the funding gap between African American and white scientists by understanding and examining how to equitably ameliorate the gap that occurs at each stage of the funding and grant review process. And NIH is actively taking steps to do this, but all funding agencies need to do this. We also need to expand the research resources that are allocated to understanding and ameliorating health disparities and conditions that disproportionately affect African-Americans and minority populations. And probably most importantly, as citizens, we're not just physicians and healthcare providers, we are citizens. We must hold our country to its founding ideals that all men and women are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life and breath, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Frequently, it has been African-Americans who have held this country to its ideals. It is time for all of us to do just that.